for a lot of families, there isn't a choice. They really have to send their kids back to school. Being able to assess your household risk tolerance and to even be able to say, oh, you know, we won't send our kids, that is a privilege that the vast majority of people do not have. We have to advocate for public education and we have to advocate for safe public education and we owe it to the people for whom that is the only option. Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith and this episode is all about safe schools. It's easily the number one concern among constituents here in Beaches East York but it's also a concern that I share personally. My, my son, Mac, will be four tomorrow, actually, and this would be his first year of school. I'm joined on this episode by two expert epidemiologists and professors, Ashley Chute and Amy Greer. Professor Chute is an epidemiologist and mathematical modeler at U of T, and Professor Greer is a Canada Research Chair in Population Disease Modeling with appointments at both the University of Guelph and U of T. Now, to date, the province has provided a little bit of support, not a lot of support, and I would say a significant lack of leadership, unfortunately, putting together a $300 million plan with an additional $50 million for HVAC work very late in the day. It has left the bulk of the work to school boards and forced them to work quickly to make last-minute improvements. Just yesterday, the TDSB importantly announced additional plans to reduce class sizes and hire more teachers, as one example. Some parents are asking whether it makes sense to send their kids to school at all this fall, but many more simply don't have a choice. And I think it's important to start there and to remember the onus is on governments to make sure this is safe for everyone. Now, I spoke to both professors before the TDSB's welcome announcement yesterday, and they both emphasize the importance of low community transmission first. As Professor Greer put it, keeping community transmission low is our best way to keep school as safe as possible. Keeping our community safe first is critically important, but they also noted the importance of additional engineering measures like smaller class sizes and administrative measures like outdoor education. For example, here's Professor Chute's take. Right now, based on the levels of community transmission that are happening, I would feel fairly comfortable sending my child to school right now, with the big caveat being that it really, really depends how the schools are set up. So we can do everything we can as a community to try and keep community transmission low. But once your child is in school, whether or not they're protected and whether you know you feel safe and comfortable really, really depends on what measures are in place. So we know that there's been a lot of talk about class sizes And I think that's a really big piece because, you know, we have all of this messaging and we've been listening to these messages for the past several months about the importance of maintaining physical distancing. And if you can't maintain physical distancing to wear a mask, keep group sizes low, have your your social circle and don't extend beyond that. And when it comes to school, all of that messaging has been a little bit thrown out the window. From a parental perspective, what you would want to see within the school setting is understand what the class sizes look like. How big is the class that your child is going to be in? Is there enough distance between between people? If not, are there alternative arrangements in place? So are, is there a plan to have more education happening outside? Even if masks are not mandatory within the classroom, are, are children going to be encouraged to use masks, specifically younger children? Because a parent, even if it's not mandatory, mandatory, you can 
teach your child to use a mask and make them really comfortable with it. And I think that's a really prudent approach. So, you know, regardless of what's mandated, you can still take precautions individually to, to make yourself more comfortable with that return to school. The size of classes was a repeated concern for both experts. And it's really important now to see the TDSB move forward with reducing class sizes and looking for alternative spaces and hiring more teachers. Because before that announcement, here's what Professor Greer had to say. It makes me uncomfortable that we are talking about sending kids back to school in full class sizes. Because if you've ever been in an elementary or high school in this province in a classroom, It is not possible to maintain two meters of physical distance and have that full class capacity. So if we're going to go back at full class size, then those kids are going to have contact with one another. And that opens up transmission risk. In the Sick Kids guidance document, there was a note that other countries are moving towards class sizes of between 10 to 15 students. The TDSB plan, from what I can tell, doesn't get us to quite that low of a number. But as Professor Chute reminded me, there is no particular magic number, and that everything depends not only on the number of kids, but also the size of the particular space. The number is really less important than the size of the classroom. So, you know, if you have a ginormous classroom, you can potentially have more students in there. I think 15 is being picked as a number because at least it's something to work towards. And I think it's easier to communicate than to say, well, you need X number of square meters per per student. I think it's not a bad thing to aim towards. But again, there's nothing magical about that number. It's more about how can you set up a classroom in a way that ensures spacing and also makes it so that people can navigate the classroom. So that's something that we also have to think about is if you have a classroom where desks are spaced two meters apart, people still need to get in and out of the classroom. The teacher still needs to be able to move around the classroom. So that can be really tricky if you're sort of wall-to-wall desks and two meters between students. So it's, I think, logistically something that people need to sit down and plan and think about. Knowing what we know about the way that the disease is transmitted and the reduced transmission risk outdoors, Professor Chute also expressed some frustration that we hadn't taken the idea of outdoor education more seriously. I do think that we are in a bit of an advantage right now in the sense that we do have nicer weather. And I know Canadian winters can be tough, but you know, September, October can be nice weather. And so I think that's one thing that for me, at least has been a little bit frustrating or puzzling is why there hasn't been more of a push to think about outdoor education and what that would look like. Of course, we are going to see school indoors and all the more important to make sure we have done everything we can to make it safe indoors, not only as a matter of reducing class sizes, but also improving ventilation. The Ford government has now allocated $50 million to do just that very late, I would say, in the day, despite months of knowing that this was going to be a consideration. And it's not at all clear that we're going to have the necessary work done by the time that schools are currently set to reopen. We're three, less than three weeks out from the start of school now. And, you know, all of a sudden we're going to update all of the HVAC in every school. I mean, our kids' school does not have air conditioning. The windows don't open. It is so weltering in there. Our kids come out at the end of the day in September and they are dripping in sweat, dripping. So I just, I cannot comprehend, like the logistics of all of this is so challenging. And I feel like we've had so much time to work with teachers and boards to come up with a good plan. And it just feels like, what have we been doing? And beyond the obvious reduced class sizes, cohorting, ventilation, outdoor teaching potentially, 
there are also the specific questions of, of how we plan our lives and, and address outbreaks and cases when they happen in our schools. And here too, parents are looking for clarity and it turns out experts are looking for clarity as well. I, that's another another aspect of the plan, you know, three weeks before school starts, that there really hasn't been a lot of clarity. And I think if you look at media and social media right now, there's, there's so much anxiety and parents have so many questions and teachers have so many questions. And I think a lot of it relates to the fact that there just isn't clarity and there hasn't been a lot of planning. You know, if your child has symptoms, this is what you need to do. If there's a confirmed case in your class, we're going to tell you, we're not going to tell you, this is what you need to do as a parent. This is what your child needs to do. There hasn't been, as far as I've seen, any of that sort of communication. And, you know, any plan that we come up with is not going to be perfect. But I think having a plan to start is at least something to hold on to and something that if you're not sure what the fall is going to look like in terms of school, having an understanding of what those protocols look like and what are the circumstances under which school is going to shut down or a class is going to be asked to stay home. Having that information and being really clear about how we're thinking about this and what that's going to look like would sort of alleviate a lot of that anxiety for many people. There's still a lot of lack of clarity that is both on the side of the public health kind of infection control part of this, right? So, you know, I get asked frequently, how am I going to screen my child? What are the screening requirements? Because we've said we're, every parent is going to screen their kid every day and they have to pass the screening to be able to go to school. Well, you know, what does that look like? That document does not exist yet. Okay, so what happens if you have a kid who is feeling unwell? Well, we don't have a document for that. What happens if a kid tests positive? Does the whole class move to remote until 14 days have passed? Are families notified? Are they not notified? Like, what does any of that look like? Is very unclear to me because I haven't seen any plans. And I know that boards are working with their local public health units. So, so there's a lot of work, like an insane amount of work currently happening between local school boards and their local public health medical officers of health to do that and get it in place. But that's a lot of work. And we're starting it, you know, the plan was only rolled out publicly like a week ago. So it just to me seems like we have to have time to get all of this in place. And I also think, you know, from the perspective of teachers, they don't know what their specific situation is. And when they return to the classroom, there will be a very small window of time. There are going to be new protocols and policies. Like as a team, they're really going to need to spend some time together as a staff to get this working, right? So that they can kind of get a groove of, of how this is going to work, because it's going to be very different. And I think throwing them in for, you know, one or two days of the days before school starts and then saying, okay, now let's just start seems, seems a bit wild to me. As one gets into the details of a school reopening plan, one quickly recognizes just how complicated and difficult some of these decisions can be. As the son of two teachers, I've been speaking to my mom in particular. She's still very much connected with teachers in our community. And my mom was an active supply teacher. Both my parents supply top, but my mom was an active supply teacher before the pandemic. And she's made the point that supply teaching, as one example, presents a significant challenge, not only for the teachers themselves, but also moving in between schools, which potentially creates increased risks. And this is obviously not only a concern for teachers, but this was reiterated by Professor Greer. 
I mean, the supply teacher thing is something that I have been bringing up over and over again, because we know that in the long-term care setting, right? When we had outbreaks in long-term care that started, you know, those long-term care outbreaks kind of started in BC because that's where they initially had kind of the preliminary early cases. One of the risk factors for long-term care outbreaks was healthcare workers who worked in multiple facilities, right? Because they might work part-time at facility A and they work part-time at facility B. And so, so they generate a bridge between two different communities And that allows for a a pathogen to potentially spread more easily than if they're kind of distinct independent units for which there is no bridge. The idea of having supply teachers who are moving between schools, and I think it is reasonable to assume that we need to be planning for high absenteeism. If one of our main infection control strategies is going to be, we don't want people coming to work if they're having any sort of symptom that might suggest that they have COVID-19. And that's going to be really hard in the fall, right? Because kids go back to school and they get every sniffle and cough and prolonged cough illness. They get all of these things. How are we going to tell, right? We're not going to have all those people get tested every time they get a sniffle, but we can't risk them being in the classroom. And so we have to plan for rates of high absenteeism. We have to support teachers to make decisions that allow them to not be penalized for saying, hey, I have a cough. I cannot be in the school until I am certain that this isn't going to turn into something else. That means we're going to need supply teachers. We are going to need people who are able to cover that. And having them move between schools as a bridge is the same thing we saw in long-term care, right? As uh, in terms of, of bridging different groups of individuals, they're going to wash their hands. They're going to wear a mask. They're going to do all of those things. But ultimately, it still represents a risk. It's riskier than if we had supply teachers who were themselves cohorted to specific or smaller groups. That's also a challenge. And we know that there are other staff, right? Speech and language pathologists come in and out of schools, psychologists, you know, no school has dedicated resources for all of those additional supports that many kids access through school. And so we really kind of also need to think about that. And there's been a lot of talk around delivery of some of those other types of subjects, right? So French. If your child is not in French immersion, they would have one period of French, and that would be with a French teacher who moves between classes. So we're generating bridges between cohorts, if you will, by virtue of having people move between the groups. And and that's problematic. It increases risk. That is a potential vector for transmission. There are obviously so very many detailed considerations. And having spoken to our wonderful local trustee, Michelle Arts, I know that people on the ground in our boards are working as hard as they can to get those detailed decisions right. But it is frustrating that the province has left this so late in the day, has not given the boards the space and time that they need. And even more frustrating that the province has made some decisions that might jeopardize school openings by virtue of community transmission. So not detailed decisions in specifics about supply teachers, but these broader decisions about phases of reopening. As Professors Chute and Greer wrote together alongside Professor Fisman in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, if reopening of schools and reuniting families and caregivers with long-term care residents is to be prioritized, we may have to forego the reopening of indoor bars and restaurants. 
as concurrency of these activities is likely to substantially increase transmission. I asked Professor Greer specifically if the reopening of bars and restaurants indoors in advance of schools put school reopening in jeopardy and caused her concern. I worry about it a lot, to be honest. We know that there are examples, and for instance, we um, just received an email earlier this week from colleagues in Korea where they have already, they're a little bit ahead of us, they open some of those what we would call congregate settings. So indoor settings where people come to and congregate. So, you know, bars, restaurants, clubs. So they, in their um, reopening, had moved into the phase where they were opening those types of indoor settings. And they have since seen quite significant research in in transmission in the community such that they are currently talking about having to scale back to phase two very soon or, or, you know, immediately. I think that indoor spaces represent a real challenge. And I think that right now we're getting a bit of an assist from summer, right? Which is that it is easy for us to have some sense of normalcy, even if it is physically distanced, because we can visit people outdoors. We can visit outdoors and we can keep two meters of distance and we can wear masks uh, when we're not able to do that. But we know that those types of interactions are lower risk. As we head into fall, people are going to start moving back indoors. Businesses are going to start to have at least some employees returning to their offices. And that's going to represent a real challenge to transmission. And I think it would be unreasonable to assume that transmission will continue to stay low. It just, it seems impossible because we know that what drives transmission is contact rate and the probability of transmission given a contact. We can do things to influence those two parts of the puzzle. Like we can wear masks when we're indoors and we know that that's beneficial, but ultimately at the scale of the province, we are going to see upticks in transmission as people start moving back indoors. And it's likely going to start with school. And Professor Chu just reiterated that very same point, calling schools a perfect storm. We're basically the perfect storm in terms of where is this virus going to thrive is in a school setting because you have those closed spaces, crowded spaces and close contact. It belies the comments from David Williams, the provincial public health officer, who has said if there was a risk, we wouldn't be moving forward with school reopening suggesting that there is no risk, but of course there are risks. And it is our job to recognize that fact. It's our job as elected officials, our job as public health officials to recognize that there are risks and then take as many steps as we can within our power to mitigate those risks. Saying that there's no risk and, and, and minimizing that is not helpful. There there are risks and there, you know, there are obviously a lot of benefits with reopening schools, which is why we're pushing for that. But at least being upfront about there are things that are going to happen when we open the schools. And these are the things that we're doing to to mitigate those risks and to to make sure that we have the processes in place and make sure that we're communicating that with students and educators and with parents, I think is a really important piece of this. And I think it's a piece that's been lacking. Or as Professor Greer put it quite bluntly, there's no option that's zero risk. And is it less risky in schools with kids because some voices and some research has suggested that kids aren't the super spreaders that some were initially concerned they might be? 
Professor Greer suggests that it is not so very clear and that we should err on the side of caution. The role of kids in transmission, I think there is still significant uncertainty. And the challenge is that we have been doing a really good job of protecting kids from exposure by closing schools. And so, you know, a lot of the talk about kids are not susceptible, but they weren't given opportunities to be infected because we kept them home. And we were doing a really good job of sheltering them because playgrounds were closed, places where they could go to to interact with other people. They were only staying in their homes. And so it's really hard to say. There are so many biases that exist in the scientific data that were collected because they were collected under very unusual circumstances, right? Not under normal conditions. And so personally, I feel as though I would much prefer to err on the side of caution and perhaps slightly overreact if it turns out that young kids for whatever magical reason, don't transmit as much as an adult, then great, right? But I mean, I personally would prefer that we assume that the possibility is there and we should act as though it was the case that it is possible and take every measure possible to minimize risk. And if we don't take those risks seriously and do everything we can by reducing class sizes, cohorting, improving ventilation, taking the very detailed and granular decisions on busing, supply teaching, and more. If we don't get these decisions right and do everything we can, including spending the dollars necessary to get this right and hiring the teachers that we need across the province, then we are putting our society at greater risks for increased community transmission. But we know because COVID has disproportionately impacted communities that are less privileged. We know that the school reopening, if we don't get it right, will also disproportionately and negatively impact less privileged communities all over again. Absolutely. They're the neighborhood effects in terms of the risk of COVID entering the school. And then I think within the school, you're going to schools in different neighborhoods, you're going to see differences because the neighborhoods where parents have choices in terms of can they potentially keep their child home from school, those schools are going to have smaller class sizes. In other communities where that's not an option, you're going to have the more crowded classes, which is, you know, another element that's going to contribute to the likelihood of you seeing an outbreak. So much of this conversation is obviously provincial education is entirely a provincial responsibility. I get asked a lot of questions at the federal level. What can the federal government do to help? We've recently entered into a safe restart deal with the provinces and provided $19 billion in federal funding for provincial priorities. $625 million for childcare, which I'm told is flexible enough to be used for safe school reopening. There was also billions of dollars for PPE, which can, of course, be used in schools as well. And then when you take a step back and you think, well, the $19 billion is largely for these provincial priorities that should give the provinces the fiscal flexibility they need to get this done. It's hard to know exactly how to lean in at the federal level. The province hasn't come to us with a very comprehensive plan with a significant dollar figure and said, we can't finance this on our own. If they did, that may well be a different conversation. So having turned my mind to different ways that the federal government can help, I come back to this question of testing. And we've seen recently through an NBA-funded initiative at Yale, there is a new saliva test. It is open source. There is nothing that stops us from putting resources to make it happen here and scale it here in Canada. And between saliva tests, easy-to-administer tests, rapid tests, that seems to be the way that the federal government could lean in 
obviously through expediting its approval through Health Canada, the same way that the FDA has approved the saliva test on an emergency basis, but also ramping up through federal spending, the scale of the testing efforts and potentially a significant federal purchase order to commit a significant amount of money that the private sector can then respond to as the private sector could then scale up these testing efforts. But testing seems like it could make a significant difference. But so I put that idea to the experts. I think the saliva tests and the rapid tests, which are two different things, are potentially game-changing. So the advantage of the saliva test is what you just said is anybody can do it. You basically need somebody to drool into a tube and you collect the drool. You don't need a health professional. You don't need somebody qualified to, to do the swab, which is in, which is incredible because that really opens it up in terms of, you know, who can do this. And then, you know, there are the questions around the sort of rapid tests, which are tests that you can use at the point that you collect the sample. And then there are other tests that use saliva, but still have to go back to a lab. And so there's so, I think the turnaround times would be a little bit slower just because you still have to transport the samples. But both of those are are game-changing because it it opens up who can get tested and it, and it increases the speed at which people can get tested. And I think in settings like in schools, that would be incredibly, incredibly helpful. And a lot of the U.S. universities that are opening, and a lot of them are not opening because of the high rates of COVID that are, are transmitting right now, a, a huge part of those reopening campus plans include frequent testing. And the tests don't have to be perfect because the idea is you have a test that is less sensitive at detecting infection, but you do it more frequently. And at the peak of infection, you know, if you're able to test somebody every day or every two days, you'll get them at the peak of their infection, potentially before they're symptomatic even. And that if you're doing that at a large level, so like across the population, you can really shut down transmission potentially. So I do think, you know, getting those tests approved and, you know, figuring out how to deploy them large scale would, would really, really change the pandemic response in Canada. If we had an effective, easy to administer rapid test that was not an exorbitant cost, I think it could be a game changer. The question is, you know, what would the timeline of something, you know, that's not the sort of thing that we're looking at for September or likely even October. But I do think if you think about, if you've seen pictures or videos of people getting, you know, an NP swab, you can imagine, I mean, I had to take my kid for a blood test once, like heavens, I cannot imagine having them, somebody come at them with a, a very long swab and think this is going to go well, right? So the idea of having your kids spit in a tube, they can spit in a tube. They might actually like spitting in a tube. Maybe that's the sort of thing that you could have parents do, right? I mean, like your kid, before they go to school, they're going to spit in the tube and you're going to drop it in the drop box at the front of the school when you drop your kid off or your kid brings it to school and it gets dropped into a, into a drop box. You could rapidly turn those types of things around, even if the test wasn't perfect. And I mean, I think that's the challenge, right? Is that no test is going to be perfect, um, especially when it's saliva-based test. There are going to be false negatives, certainly. But if you could pick up kids who were infected earlier, especially because kids don't really show symptoms, right? If our if our first line of defense is to keep kids who are sick or who are infected with COVID-19 out of school settings, that in and of itself is challenging because kids don't really show 
super obvious symptoms. A saliva-based test that you could do repeatedly over time and rapidly turn around, I think could be a game changer. The question is just, what does the timeline on, on delivery? Bottom line, both professors indicated that with community transmission where it is today, so long as it remains low, below 100 cases, say, across Ontario, parents could be reasonably confident overall in sending their kids back to school, but reiterated that because of a lack of choice, the inequality of choice, it is incumbent upon the provincial government and boards to get this right and to do everything they can in reducing class sizes, in cohorting, in ventilation work, and more to ensure that we are making this as safe as possible. And Professor Greer added the caveat that we should be under no illusion that there aren't going to be outbreaks in our schools. We would be naive to think that we will not see school outbreaks. How long that takes to start to happen is a bit unclear. But even if we have school outbreaks, we know that we have public health infrastructures. Local public health units are going to manage those outbreaks. And they're going to work very hard to make sure that before you get the forest fire of outbreak, that you get in there early and that you contain whatever you have as kind of like a spot, right? So you, you contain that little flare up before it becomes a big problem. That is to be expected. I think parents need to know that that is a possibility. And again, they have to think about what their own household risk threshold is for the potential for that. And you live with a grandparent or you want to maintain non-physically distanced contact with higher risk individuals, school is going to be higher risk. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. Thanks, of course, to Ashley and Amy for their time and their public advocacy in support of stronger health measures and keeping our schools safe. If you're a parent, a teacher, a staff member, if you feel strongly about a safe school opening and you are concerned about the planning, the lack of planning to keep our schools safe this fall, make sure you reach out to Premier Ford's office and make your voice heard. Now is the time. We need additional action to keep our schools safe.